Every Monday to Friday, this is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Money Talk. Good morning. This is Peter Lewis welcoming you back to my podcast, Money Talk. I hope you had a great break for Easter. This podcast is sponsored by online financial services company Surfing Group, which is headquartered in Singapore. And here are the business and finance headlines for Tuesday, the 11th of April. The global economy is set to grow at roughly 3% over the next five years. That's the slowest pace since 1990, the head of the International Monetary Fund said last week. Speaking ahead of the World Bank and IMF spring meetings this week in Washington, D.C., Kristalina Georgieva said the path ahead was rough and foggy and warned that cooperation to address the problems was becoming more difficult. French President Emmanuel Macron said that Europe needs to decrease its reliance on the U.S. for weapons, energy and the U.S. dollar. Mr Macron also emphasised the importance of Europe avoiding being drawn into a potential conflict between China and the U.S. over Taiwan. Tesla has announced plans to build a factory in Shanghai to produce its Megapack energy storage system. These are large lithium-ion battery packs which help store renewable energy for electricity grids. Construction of the new plant is expected to begin during the third quarter of this year, with production scheduled to begin in the second quarter of 2024. And in the US... First quarter earnings season kicks off this week. Analysts expect companies in the S&P 500 to report a second consecutive decline in quarterly earnings. First quarter profits are projected to drop 6.8% from the same period a year ago, according to FactSet. On today's Money Talk, we're joined by Mark Michelson, Chairman of the Asia CEO Forum at IMA Asia, Andrew Sullivan, who is founder of Asian Market Sense, and our US economics correspondent, writer and broadcaster Barry Wood. And if you want to get in touch, please go to my website, peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. Peter US stocks were slightly higher Monday, ahead of key consumer price inflation data due for release Wednesday. The S&P 500 rose 0.1% to 4,109. The Dow added 101 points. That's about a third of a percent to 33,587. Meanwhile, the Nasdaq Composite inched lower by under 0.1% to close at 12,084. In mainland China, the Shanghai Composite was down 0.4% at 3,315. The index added 1.7% last week, and China's onshore market has seen four straight weeks of gains taking the Shanghai Composite to a one-month high as optimism improved after Beijing pledged to support the chip-making industry. Hong Kong stocks were closed Friday and Monday for the Easter holidays. Futures markets are pointing to gains of around 240 points or 0.9% for the Hang Seng at the open this morning. Other risk assets were mixed in thin trading on Easter Monday. The US dollar continued its advance from Friday after the jobs data, which overall was seen as consistent with a soft landing for the US economy. The Japanese yen saw notable weakness after the new Bank of Japan governor said in a press conference there will be no change to the central bank's ultra-loose monetary policy for now. The yen fell 1.1% to 133.56. Treasury bond markets, which were open Friday, had already already reacted to the latest US jobs data and sold off. On Monday, the two-year Treasury notes rose four basis points to 4.01%, but still leaving it almost 100 basis points below the federal funds rate. And you can get more details on all the latest market movements on my daily blog, which is at peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. Every Monday to Friday, this is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Peter Lewis's.
I'm joined now by Mark Michelson, who is chairman of the Asia CEO Forum at IMA Asia. Good morning to you, Mark. Uh, good morning, Peter, Barry, uh, and Andrew. And here in the studio with me is Andrew Sullivan, who is the founder of Asian Market Sense. Morning to you, Andrew. Good morning. And over in Washington, D.C., as always on a Tuesday, we find Barry Wood, our U.S. economics correspondent, writer, and broadcaster. Morning to you, Barry. Good morning, Peter. French President Emmanuel Macron took a group of French business leaders to China last week, despite calls from the EU to de-risk ties. On the trip, he was accompanied by European Commission Chief Ursula von der Leyen, and in a speech a week prior to the visit, Ms. von der Leyen said that the EU is not seeking to decouple from China, but needs to de-risk ties in both economic and political ways. Meanwhile, Mr. Macron struck a less strident tone as he sought to chart a different course in relations compared with the US's tougher approach to Beijing. He said Europe must reduce its dependency on the United States and avoid getting dragged into a confrontation between China and the US over Taiwan. And on his plane back from the three-day state visit to China, he said the great risk Europe faces is getting caught up in the crises that are not ours. In the interview with journalists, he emphasised his pet theory of strategic autonomy for Europe, which is presumably led by France, to become a third superpower. And Mr Macron also warned against what he called the extraterritoriality of the US dollar, which can force European companies to forego business with third countries or risk sanction violations. Now, Barry, we've talked many times on this programme about US-China relations, not so much about EU-China relations, but how important... Do you think the EU is uh, to China and President Xi Jinping? And how would you sort of summarize the state of EU-China relations? Yes, I think it's very important, Peter. And uh, it has to do really with the fact that, uh, like the United States, Europe is dependent on rather well-built but lower-priced Chinese imports. They don't want to jeopardize that. I think it is a surprise that... um, President Macron has distanced himself to the extent he has from the United States. But that's just one statement. I mean, particularly talking about the extraterritorial of American trade sanctions or the use of the dollar. But I think it's significant. Clearly, President Xi has identified President Macron as a man he wants to cultivate. And you could say, if you're cynical, maybe realistic, that he would like to build that relationship to separate some European countries from the United States. It, it seemed, didn't it, when you look at the optics of the meetings last week, um, that Ursula von der Leyen was very much being sidelined. And it was really the focus was on President Macron. Um, and, and if anything, President Macron and Ursula von der Leyen don't seem to be on the same page when it comes to their approach to China. No, well, she I was taking... Yeah, go ahead, Mark. No, she was just... Barry, you go first. Right. I think that, uh, you know, that's that's the soft person and it's the hard person. And van der Leyen had the hard role to play. It's not a surprise. I'm sure she knew in advance this was going to happen. But, uh, yeah, I think the the relations between the United States and Europe are so much improved over the last two years than they were with President Trump. You've seen this rallying both on Ukraine, the COVID response, and certainly on China from the European Union. And that's right more than two dozen countries. So, yeah, I think uh, van der Leyen, as the uh, president of the commission, she's, uh, she's taken the tough line, and Macron took the soft one. Yeah, she sounds 
a lot like the U.S. government. Of course, she's representing the EU, not just France. She also happens to be German, which also might have uh, have some implications as well. But at the same time, you know, it's interesting. When Macron was talking about the U.S. dollar and finding an alternative to the U.S. dollar and, and, and other issues, he sounded like my class, uh, <laughs> especially, especially last term of Chinese U. They're mainland students mainly in it, but also the Europeans. And they basically had the, it's a small sample, they basically had a, a very similar view, looking for alternatives, although having some issues, of course, on Ukraine and, 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 and other areas, but at the same time seeing that there just has to be a different, a different mindset here and there has to be some degree of cooperation. And of course, companies need it very, very much. Europe and, and, and China have very extensive economic relations, both trade and investment. And the European Chamber of Commerce is a very powerful uh, force in, in China as well and is very, very vocal and active, complaining sometimes about what's happened during COVID and so on, but also promoting the areas where they should cooperate, sounding a little bit like, uh, like President Macron. I mean, the other thing I think you've got to take into account is Macron is trying to take that place as the statesman in Europe now that Merkel has gone. Uh, and unfortunately, we, we saw him pay this personal call with Putin, which led to nothing. And I think the risk is that he's, you know, done the same thing with Xi, cemented that relationship, but really come away with very little. Do you think he speaks for Europe when he talks about, you know, trying to strengthen ties with China and, and de-emphasize ties with the US? Or is this his own personal agenda? I think this is his own personal agenda. And, and similar to Z, it's, you know, they're trying to you know, elevate themselves into international statesmen rather than, you know, mm. looking wider than that. It does seem, though, that I mean, President Xi would love to fracture that US-EU relationship. And it seems almost as if President Macron walked straight into the trap. Well, yeah, I mean, he did say he'd spoken to Biden before he went there. So they were, you know, they were supposed to be on the same page. But yes, I mean, I think the, the risk that a lot of people were worried about was the fact that Xi would take advantage of that uh, and use it as a leverage. And, you know, cutting von der Leyen out of you know, the banquets and the, 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 the pageantry and parades seems to be um, seems to suggest that that's exactly what happened. I mean, Barry, he talked about what he called the extraterritoriality of the US dollar. And he was complaining about, you know, sanctions that can force European companies to, to forego business with third countries or, or risk sanctions uh, violations. He was talking about less dependency upon the US for energy, for weapons. But then it does seem rather to defy reality, which is that the EU is dependent upon the US, isn't it? Certainly when it comes to its defence and membership of NATO. Well, that's true. But at the same time, Peter, I mean, this is a French position that has gone back um, certainly more than five decades. It was the French who came up with the term exorbitant privilege of the United States dollar. That was in the 1960s, which seems like ancient history. I think mm. the French have rallied to the North American identity and, and unity in the last couple of years, and, and certainly President Macron is very much pro-American. I don't make too much of this, but you're right. I think President Xi would very much like to separate some of the Europeans from the Americans. And at the same time, of course, uh, a few years ago, the Europeans experienced uh, some sanctions of their own, or at least threats of sanctions in other situations. And, you know, we have a presidential election in the U.S. next year, and uh, it's not clear what's going to happen there. So, you know, I think uh, I think the concerns that are being raised are 
are quite real, not only for France, but I expect for, the, for much of the rest of the EU. I mean, Andrew, a couple of things that came out of this meeting. First of all, there didn't seem to be any progress at all on Ukraine, did there? I mean, no, uh, nothing. <laughs> you really wanted President Xi to use his influence to, to pressurise Putin to end the war, but no sign of any give there. And the other rather depressing outcome is it seems that the EU-China Comprehensive Agreement on Investment, which has been frozen what, for about two years now, that seems to be dead in the water. Well, I mean, that, that agreement is still subject. You know, the reason it's dead in the water is because of the sanctions that China put on the Europe. So, you know, that's not, uh, you know, I think they, they would need to see those lifted. And as China is making no progress on doing that, that's unlikely to move. And I think you're right. I mean, as I said earlier, you know, Macron was trying to play the personal card of, of getting his relationship with Xi to, to move. But the reality is that China will only move when it's in China's benefit, uh, and it's not going to move before that. And at the moment, it's much more important for China to support Russia than it is to see peace in Ukraine. Do you think that's true, Barry, that uh, President Xi's position is it's far more important for its geopolitical goals to support Russia than it is to see peace in Ukraine? Oh, boy, that's a tough one. I think that um, President Xi has to be applauded for what he has uh, put on the table. After all, he's the only one. You'd have to go back a year when the Turks, maybe Israelis, were talking about some kind of peace opportunity, at least to bring the parties into the same room and talk. Uh, so, yeah, I'm not uh, critical of that. But, uh, yeah, I think that uh, there is a very tangible link now between Russia and China and increasingly by Saudi Arabia. I mean, this whole business of the oil trade between those two countries. And you could look at the BRICS in terms of India and South Africa but and Brazil. But uh, that that's probably not going to go anywhere. But I think uh, President Xi and China is playing a very important and skillful role in identifying a separate identity. Some would say, Peter, isn't this a bit of a joke? for the Chinese president, whose capital account makes the renminbi not a convertible currency, to be the defender of the international trading system. But that's what's happened. Mm. It, yeah, at least the paper. But I also would, would mention, you mentioned that the, uh, that the meeting with, uh, with Xi and, and, and Macron and, and Van Leyden didn't really produce much on Ukraine. You could argue that maybe the meeting between Xi and Putin didn't produce much on Ukraine mm. either. I, you know, as uh, really to underline what Barry said, it's it's a fine balance. It's a bit of a tight rope, but it's being walked right now by China and so far reasonably successfully. Although, as we all know, that could change very quickly. And Andrew, do you think it's a, a choice now for President Xi if he wants to have closer relations with the EU? He's got to at least play a more neutral role in, uh, in Ukraine and dial down his support for Russia, or can he have both? I don't think he can have both, but I mean, I think one of the things we were hoping was the fact that that muted call that was supposed to be coming to Zelensky has never appeared. So that kind of shows that, you know, China is being restrained in, in the amount of activity it's prepared to put in towards finding peace. Um, but I definitely think, yes, if he wants the, the trade agreement with Europe to go ahead, then they have to be, you know, they have to be conciliatory over the sanctions that they've placed on the European EU members. OK, let's switch our attention to the US economy. On Friday, we had the jobs report from the US Bureau of Labor Statistics, uh, which shows jobs growth slowed in March to a level that was in line with estimates. The US economy added 236,000 positions last month, but that is the least since December 2020. 
and it was well down from an upwardly revised 326,000 jobs created in February. The unemployment rate, that slipped to 3.5%, which is just above a multi-decade low. And wage growth remained solid. Average hourly earnings up a third of a percent in March, following a 0.2% increase in the previous month. On a year-on-year basis, wages have increased 4.2%, which has eased from 4.6% in February. Um, Barry, what, what do you take away from this jobs report? Much better than expected. And I think the uh, United States economy at this point is a long distance from recession. Sure, it is weakening. But my goodness, you're still producing jobs. You've got an inflation rate that is on the downtrend. You've got an unemployment rate that is the lowest in, what, five decades. So this is extraordinary. I think uh, the U.S. consumer continues to hang on and the job market is slowly normalizing. Mm. It's, It's cooling off, isn't it? But is it cooling off enough for the Fed? No, I think that uh, probably the Fed looks at the Friday statistics and say, well, you know, this is this is indication that we can raise rates one more time and uh, still really not kill the economy. That's the key thing, isn't it, Mark, about how many times the Fed's going to raise rates. Futures markets are pricing in now about a 76 percent chance of one more uh, when the Fed next meets in May. But then uh, cutting rates by almost 75 basis points before the end of the year. Enough. I'll, I'll leave it to others to, to figure out whether that's going to happen. In terms of the recession, as you pointed out in the, in, in the, in the analyses, there are a lot of mixed views of this, right? Still, still there are some that think that a recession is, is likely, although the latest I heard by one well-known, uh, well-known economic uh, forecasting group is that uh, they think both the U.S. and part of Europe picking out Germany, Italy, and the UK will go into recession, but a very mild one, picking around zero on either mm-hmm. side of on either side of zero in the third and fourth quarter. We really don't know. But at the same time there are signs on both sides, and I tend to agree with Barry, at least the uh, the near term uh, near term results look fairly promising at this point. I mean, Andrew, if we looked at the data from last week in its totality, overall, it seemed to show the US economy weakening, didn't it? We had the ISM manufacturing PMI, the jobs opening survey, this jobs report, all seem to be pointing to a weakening of the US economy. Yeah, I mean, I think, as, as Barry was mentioning, it, it's a matter that for the Fed, it's not happening quickly enough. Um, and I think you've also got to back, you know, base into that the fact that the oil prices are going to be a big driver going forward on that. But I think the other thing you've got to take into account is that uh, Powell is still targeting this 2% inflation rate as being his optimum, saying that that's the long-term average. But the reality is the fact that for the last 10 years, we've had free money, which has also altered that average rate. So it may be impractical to get down to 2%, and that's going to be a problem. Is Are the markets out of kilter, though, with the Fed thinking? If you look at their dot plots, and you look at what they're saying, they're not talking about 75 basis points of rate cuts by the end of the year, are they? No, and it's interesting that you know we've said for years, you know, never fight the Fed, and yet this time around everybody seems to be willing, despite what all the Fed speakers are saying, that the rates are going to have to stay higher for longer 
um, that people asked are, as you say, backing in the, the, the fact that they'll, they'll have to cut rates. And I think it was interesting, Mester was saying last week that, you know, whilst they don't, you know, don't intend to be so rigid as to force the economy into recession, they are data dependent. And the trouble with data dependency is it tends to, you, you smooth out a number of the, the ups and downs in the short term, but you, you may well miss the long term objective. Mm. Barry, where does this all fit into the global economy? Because we've got these um, IMF and uh, World Bank spring meetings starting, uh, starting this week. Uh, the IMF uh, was talking about uh, the global economy uh, growing at roughly 3% over the next five years, which is the slowest pace since 1990. Um, are, are you as pessimistic as that? No, I'm not. And uh, on the U.S. economy, I agree with Mark. I think Mark's got it exactly right. You can't know what's going to happen. Sure, there's a building case for recession, mild recession. But you could also say the end. U.S. economy will sort of muddle through, and who knows. Uh, but as to the global economy, Peter, I think it is slowing. We're really dependent on a couple things. Well, three. One, how fast is China going to recover? I know there's a lot of pessimists in Hong Kong about the pace of recovery in China. Number two, what about the Ukraine war? Is it going to wind down? Is it going to get worse? And what about interest rates in terms of slowing down further the United States economy? I think that the IMF is going to say, look, we've got slowing, but we've got inflation on the downtrend, we'll muddle through. Certainly, given where we've been with COVID, with the war, with the disruptions in the supply chain, not bad. Mark, what are your members sort of seeing when they look around the region? Well, you know, well there, there are certainly concerns because exports still are slow. There are there are. There are signs that maybe we're not quite back yet, although also there are some reasonable signs in tourism and so on. But I, I've got a, one of our members, and looking at China, partly in reflection what Barry said, he said, the big question all of us face right now is our investment strategy for China. Is it a high growth strategy, a normal growth strategy, or is it a risk strategy to step back? And he said, and, um, and geopolitical geopolitical uh, issues are also affecting this. So, you know, that's basically it. Looking at, say, where they're going to go forward. Some are just moving ahead, as you've seen, some some investments, and we've heard heard about that Tesla maybe most dramatically uh, recently, but at the same time, uh, there are others that are just trying to figure out. It's not that most of them are leaving, mm. but they're figuring out how much they have to diversify. And that Tesla news, building um, its battery mega pack in uh, Shanghai, opening a factory there, it seems that um, big business leaders are ignoring the Biden administration's call to sort of like de-risk from China and to step back from investments there. Uh, they're they're ploughing ahead. Yes, I'll come in on that one. I think that Tesla and Apple are the two companies that are the most tied into China. I don't find this a surprise. The success of the Shanghai gigafactory for producing Tesla cars is extraordinary. The speed at which it was done and the high quality of the cars coming out of there. So that they want to do this gigafactory for, uh, you know, storage on, on, on batteries in China, no surprise to me. And I think what we're seeing, Peter, is the business community really in one sense with Tesla and Apple sort of being out front they're going to make the case that you've got to have business relationships with China. Are, are they? Some, oh, go ahead. I just wanted to say some some of our members are sort of following, I don't know, following, but or leading uh, 
in terms of investing more in China. They're just more quiet. They're quieter about it. That's the thing, isn't it? That business leaders, with a couple of exceptions, maybe Tim Cook, Elon Musk, in general, they want to do this quietly. They don't want it. They don't announce that they're going to these big forums in Beijing and the Barrel Forum. They do it quietly. They don't particularly want to be seen. They don't want to be quoted. But they do still want to engage with China and and invest. Is that the sense you're getting? You got it. Yes. Yeah, I think the other thing is, I mean, obviously with Apple, though, we're seeing them move into India, which is a big move for them. Hmm. And I think the other problem with the Chinese economy and and certainly the recovery is is still the big overhang from the property sector and the local authority debt refinancing, which, you know, if China is going to get its economy going, it does need to again do infrastructure, which requires local authority funding to be in place. And where does India fit in? According to the IMF, China and India are going to be the two big growth markets in um, in the world this year. And you're talking about, you know, companies are uh, shifting production to India. Is India going to have a bigger place now in global supply chains? I think slowly. I mean, I think the key thing here is that India's employment laws need to change. I mean, we saw the one state that in Apple is going to changed its employment laws to allow two shifts to operate. But there's also the fact that, you know, it's got a very good IT Uh, educated uh, engineering force but it still doesn't use women in the workforce to the same extent that China has and obviously for the past 10 years manufacturing has been that huge driver for China and for the middle classes in China we need to see a change in attitude in India for that to happen but on the good side Modi and the previous government they've all been putting money into infrastructure but unlike China they can't just make roads go straight through they have to consult the planning process so there are hiccups on the way but certainly there is a, I think with Apple moving there there is certainly a good indication that they will be prepared to compromise in order to get that growth. Barry and Mark where, where do you see India um, fitting into this? Andrew is of the view that you know that, that India is stepping up to the plate although it needs to make some changes in things like employment laws and, and so on but do you see India playing a bigger part in global supply chains? They clearly are. And, and and I think I've mentioned this before, but if you took a poll of, of members of our group, of what is the plus, China plus one or plus two? India is sort of at that top of that, that chain and, and, you know, Vietnam second and a few others as well, certainly. But it's the ecosystems that which which sort of I guess Andrew was referring to that are a bit of a challenge. I mean, a lot of changes have to be made They're They're in. Uh, Prime Minister Modi's plans, they have them from the beginning, but having them done is easier said than done. And especially given what the situation in India with the states operating somewhat separately from the uh, national government and all the other complications that are there. So in some places, you know, companies can do very well in India. Other places, it's much more challenging. And I don't think that's going to change very quickly. Barry, are U.S. companies ready to, to move supply chains to India? No, not uh, not in any significant extent. But I do think that uh, the world is waiting for India. But my Indian friends here in D.C. are quick to say we're too chaotic. You're you're not going to (laughs) count on us for being the next China in terms of the discipline of building factories and getting exports out of our ports. Don't forget the geographic position of India is somewhat difficult in terms of reaching global markets. But good luck to them. We need India. And it's it's interesting. One of my... One of my students, they do project reports and, and presentations, and one of their presentations is on India, the next superpower. Mm. And they're all, all from the mainland. So that's sort of interesting. 
Andrew, do you think the, um, the, the scandal, the short-selling report on the Adani Group and the revelations from that, how, how much do you think that's damaged investors' confidence in India and, and maybe um, putting more resources into India? Well, I don't think it probably, probably didn't come as a surprise. I mean, people have always been aware of corruption in India. I think the, the, the reality of it is, though, that we've seen the stock recover. We've seen Adani put his own money in to covering and bringing down the debt levels. And you're starting to see some people that are very much uh, you know, in touch with it, like uh, the uh, GQG uh, fund has, has, has invested money there because it's the opportunity selectively to get hold of good assets that, uh, that will perform well. Okay. Now, before you go, Andrew, let me ask you about the markets. We seem to have been, well, certainly last week, sort of gone into risk-off mode, haven't we? The, 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 if, if anything, um, before stocks rallied on bad economic data, um, whereas now it isn't really helping stocks. The focus seems to be, is there going to be a recession coming up? What, what's your sense? Yes, I think. I mean, I think everybody is everybody is almost factoring in that we are going to have a recession. I mean, obviously, the Fed is saying that, no, they're going to, to ease before that. But I think we've got a lot of things there. I mean, we, we will get the inflation and the PPI data. We will look at the new loans data in China this week. Uh, and I think people, as, as you were saying earlier, they're still very concerned about how well that recovery is going in China. A lot of people were short of China because they weren't expecting the pivot on COVID. We didn't really expect China to reopen probably until the middle of the year. That caught a lot of people out. A lot of money rushed in, but then we've not seen the follow-through on the on the recovery within China. We've seen slowing. We know there's an overhang of local authority debt. We've still got problems in the property sector, and, and this, those have historically been key drivers. So until we see some real change there, people are going to remain cautious. And, of course, now we're getting back into the U.S. earnings system, you know, starting again with the banks at the end of this week. And if, if those results aren't too bad, then again, it's, a, it's another reason not to go back into China because, you know, you're, you're still staying with the certainty that the U.S. gives you and without the currency risk. You know, the U.S. is now offering you a better yield, so you don't need to go to China for additional yield that you had to over the last two, three years. The onshore markets, though, have done pretty well, haven't they, over the, over the last few weeks? They're at a one-month high. Yes, I mean, there's local money going in there. And I think, you know, you've seen new listing laws, which have allowed, you know, companies to raise money and, and it'll get speculators interested. But I think the thing is that, you know, a lot of the international funds haven't yet. And, and obviously, we've got the Connect Swap coming up, which will help them uh, be able to hedge their interest rate risks, which will be important as that differential and widens between China and the US. But I think there's still a lot of caution from international markets about whether or not this is a true recovery yet. Barry, we're into Q1 earnings season, kicks off this week. The big banks are going to report um, at the end of the week. What is significant is something we haven't seen for a while. We're in an earnings recession in the US, aren't we? First quarter profits are projected to drop about 6.8% uh, from the same period a year earlier. That's the steepest decline since the second quarter of 2020 at the height of the pandemic. How, how much do you think this changes investors' perceptions of the, of the markets? Is it going to make them more cautious? I, I suppose they, they will become more cautious. And, uh, yeah, I think uh, earnings recession, that will occur because we have a slowing economy. But in past quarters, we've seen that earnings were surprisingly on the upside. Hmm. I don't think that's going to continue. So I would not have high expectations. And do you think um, the banking crisis that we've seen in the US, has that, um, has that damaged at all investor confidence or do you think that's now dissipating over there? 
No, absolutely. It's damaged investor confidence. People are rushing into uh, certificates of deposit and getting 4.5% interest, and you know banks are losing deposits. So, yeah, the, there's a problem in the banking industry in this country, and I don't think it's going to get better anytime soon, but I don't think it's going to morph into a crisis, but uh, that's just a layman speaking. Mark, how much are your members talking about uh, the banking situation in the U.S.? Of those, especially U.S. companies, they they worry about it, but at the same time, it's not top of mind at this point. As you say, it may not have gone away, and it certainly has has raised some doubts. But at this point, uh, they're just moving ahead because they have a lot of other concerns, some of which we've just talked about earlier today. Andrew, final word to you. How much do you think um, the, 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 the banking crisis in the U.S. has damaged um, sentiment in the markets? Because we're still seeing quite a lot of money move out, aren't we, of the, the banking system, or from banks anyway, into money market funds, which are obviously a lot safer, or supposed to be a lot safer. Well, they are, and, and I think there is, as you say, I mean, banks are all about confidence. So once you've got a, uh, a break in that confidence, then people become worried. And at the same time, Fed's raising rates, so money market funds do well, and they're very secure and very safe, and that's what people want with their money at the moment. I think the other thing we have to remember about the US is the fact that also there's going to be an an issue with commercial property and refinancing property, uh, and that's going to put the banks under a little bit more stress. It's only really probably for the office sector, because industrial and retail still seem to be doing well, but that's going to be another concern coming forward. Well, thank you very much for your thoughts this morning. You heard there um, Andrew Sullivan, who is the founder of Asian Market Sense, Mark Michelson, who is chairman of the Asia CEO Forum, Time Asia, and our international economics correspondent, writer and broadcaster, Barry Wood, who is over in Washington, D.C. And let me give you a little update on tomorrow's show. I will be back uh, tomorrow morning thank, uh, with more Money Talk. Joining me to discuss the business headlines ahead of the Asian Markets Open, our personal wealth advisor, Enzia von Fahl, and Richard Harris, Chief Executive Officer at Port Shelter Investment Management. And with a view from Japan is John Byrne, who is Vice Chair of Research at the Asian Development Bank Institute. See you tomorrow. Money Talk.